Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. Joining this week is Laura Kurgan, the founder of the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia University in New York. At Columbia, Laura is also an associate professor of architecture, planning, and preservation, as well as being the director for visual studies. Kurgan was named one of Esquire Magazine's Best and Brightest in 2008 and is the recipient of both a Graham Foundation grant and a Rockefeller Foundation fellowship, among many other recognitions and awards. She's here today to talk to us about the work of her team and the center, which focuses on making data meaningful to the rest of us. As you'll hear in the interview, the center has confronted a variety of issues through their work, ranging from urban conflict to reconciliation to migration to the diversity of languages spoken in Queens, New York. We honored the center last year as part of our social design circle in recognition of the center's pioneering work and showing us how data can be effectively used to shine a light on social issues. Let's hear Laura in her own words. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the show and for being part of our social design circle last year. Uh, We've been fans of your work and fans of the center for a long time, so I'm happy to bring you here to share your perspectives with our audience. Um, As a first shot, I, I was wondering... The Center for Spatial Research was uh, preceded by the Spatial Information Design Lab at at Columbia University. And I think your work has always resonated with me as being one of the real true early adopters of some of this technology like like GIS and social media and at a time when architects were living through that digital revolution and, you know, using it to make blob texture and, and weird shapes. Um, you were kind of going in another direction and, you know, you were starting to use some of these technologies to confront, you know, issues of social justice. And this eventually took shape as uh, the Spatial Information Design Lab. Can you take us back to, to that time and, and help the listeners understand, like, what were the urgencies that really led to the initiation of that as an institution? The things that you're mentioning go back further than the start of the lab, you know, especially sort of my foray into GIS and GPS and data and data related things while others in my generation were, were, were exploring just what you say, sort of how digital technology has an influence over the way a building is designed or the way a building looks. That goes back to my early book, I think, Close Up at a Distance. It's really in 1993 where I did my first installation with Global Positioning System. And I think that's when people were making choices between the web, between digital architecture and this more spatial turn, which is nowadays come to be defined as that. So that's when I started doing those experiments and they were more funded um, by museums in the world of installation art. And I became obsessed with those technologies as ways of inhabiting space in in new ways and the sort of the confusing uh, overlaps between civilian space and military space and scales of interaction, you know, and all of that. So that was my very first project with GIS. And then that evolved into using satellite imagery and looking at the declassification of satellite imagery as it got higher and higher and higher resolution between, you know, in, uh, in the 90s and watching that whole declassification process. So it was only in 2004 when I got to Columbia 
where I started the spatial information design lab. And, you know, that was a whole series of labs that was set up institutionally by Mark Wigley as the dean. But at that moment at Columbia, there was no geography department and no GIS center per se. And so I, my lab kind of filled a gap which was really great because it allowed me to do very interdisciplinary work right as the lab started. And that was then when the Million Dollar Blocks um, project came along uh, through the first grant that we got from the Open Society Institute and my collaboration with Eric Cadora, who was a criminal justice activist. And that's how it all started. The fact that the lab, the institution of a lab arrived just at the right moment where I was kind of tired of just doing installation art, which was not enough for me in terms of the subject matter that I was addressing. And I wanted to go more in the activist, uh, into an activist arena. And, you know, that as a not-for-profit within the university really worked for me. I actually first came to know your work through the Million Dollar Blocks project, and I think it was one of those things that just sort of hits you in the head like a hammer. For our listeners who, who aren't familiar with that one, what is that? What is, what is a Million Dollar Block? A Million Dollar Block is a block where over a million dollars and more is spent to incarcerate people from a certain neighborhood. And so the project began with the impetus for mapping incarceration rather than crime. So using the same language really as the police do in terms of hotspot mapping for crime. But what the police do is sort of send police to that location and crime moves all around the city. So as we know, the United States has the highest incarceration in the world. And the way that crime is defined uh, is not all that satisfying for a number of different reasons. So when you map incarceration, you find that locations of incarceration are much more concentrated than a more even uh, spread of crime across the city, especially for low for low level crimes, crimes that often should not be dealt with by the criminal justice system. Yeah, so we made these maps and it was part of a big network of people who were working at the policy level and at the activist level. But our mapping project really allowed you to navigate the city and to find these brightly, as you know, they you know, you know the maps, they're brightly color red. And you can look at those neighborhoods. Of course, the residents of those neighborhoods know these facts very well. But if you don't, then you can look at that neighborhood in a way and decide, you know, isn't there a better way of spending money rather than cycling people in and out of a very unfair criminal justice system. So, I mean, it almost necessitates a conclusion of why are we spending a million dollars to incarcerate people from this block when we could spend, you know, a tenth of that amount to put, you know, some sort of social services that would actually, you know, improve the the fortunes in the future of the residents of that community. Well, you know, I'm not sure social services are the things that are going to solve this issue. There's structural racism. There are attitudes towards poverty that are very deep-seated in, in the society. So, yes, of course, social services would do very well there. After-school programs would do very well there. But we really need to pay attention to the larger issues that are at work here. And since this is something that's widespread across the country, 
that's what we were trying to highlight and to try think about in a different way. So in fact, we didn't say what social services uh, would go here. We said, what are better ways of investing? What is missing here? Why is there such disinvestment? And has the reaction to, to that data, that presentation of data been satisfying? Do you think that, that people are turning around? You know, 10 years after the project, it's really astonishing to me that so many people know the project so well, and it's been replicated, um, actually, in other cities. It's been replicated in Chicago. It's been replicated in Los Angeles by other researchers, which is really satisfying for me. But, you know, uh, our new president is not helping this issue very much. There was a lot of momentum um, at the end of the Obama presidency and we wait and we see what is about to happen next you know i do think that um trying to solve mass incarceration has never been uh one political party or other or another it, oftentimes these things have actually been quite bipartisan and i, I think in some states still are so uh, yeah i don't I, I don't pretend um to have the answer to how to turn around the, the criminal justice system. But this is a project that kind of has never left my lab or my center. And we did a, a big project on uh, probation across New York City, where we did a planning uh, project with the Department of Probation, looking at, uh, actually, since you know, I'm an architect, at probation waiting rooms. And that was still in the Bruin era with the office of uh, operations uh, collaborated with us and we did almost like a service design approach to probation in New York City and it did result in the redesign of 15 probation waiting rooms which is an, an infrastructure as such and also established things called NEONs, Neighborhood Economic Opportunity um, Networks where offices of probation would be located within a neighborhood where there were a lot of people on probation rather than mm-hmm. having people on probation travel a really long way to come to the to the courthouses and twiddle their thumbs for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. That was one project. And right now, we've actually just published um, a new map with the Architectural League. They're doing a, a series on urban omnibus called Locations of Justice, or the location of justice, and we've just issued a map which shows all the ways in which the criminal justice system has an impact on the city. So everything from these new probation offices to, you know, the courts to police stations, we've defined these places with a legend which says they're either the hard aspects of criminal justice, which are in some ways unchanged or a soft approach to criminal justice, which are part of um, its alternatives. So that's something we should look out for. We'll, we'll be updating that. Giving people a sense of that prison infrastructure, the criminal justice infrastructure that kind of exists around them is, is the first step to, to addressing some of this stuff. And it is quite shocking to think that we have the highest incarceration rates in in the world, and it, it passes us by. I mean, you can kind of walk through your day, and you know, if someone's not pointing it out, you, you don't necessarily notice it. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying our conversation with Laura Kurgan about the work of the Center for Spatial Research. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive right back into conflict urbanism, some of the Center's more recent projects. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. 
Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Laura Kurgan about the Center for Spatial Research and how it came to be. Next up, we're going to be talking about conflict urbanism and the varying ways that data can be constructed. Let's get back into it. Laura, it's clear that you're really passionate about justice and injustice, and I wanted to ask you, when in your life did that first show up? And how did you realize that you can have an impact on it? <laughs> I grew up in South Africa, and so this has been a theme of my life ever since I can remember. And my parents um, are both, you know, immigrants from, from the Second World War, came to South Africa. It's just something I, you know, I live in this world and uh, it's what I notice. I want to return to this issue of um, the criminal justice system and the, the sort of impacts of this this new presidency, this new era. But I, I did want to make some time to talk about conflict urbanism, um, which I think is a powerful idea. So many of us are just used to understanding conflict, especially conflict in faraway places, merely through the lens of CNN or, or Twitter or sound bites or something like that. And your lab is trying to do something extraordinary to, if I'm understanding it correctly, map war in real time um, and open source maps so that people can kind of receive information about the nature of that that conflict. In your own words, like what, what is conflict urbanism? Conflict urbanism is, is not only about war. So I think the two projects that are on the website right now are Conflict Urbanism Aleppo and Conflict Urbanism Colombia. So in Aleppo, yes, we were definitely tracking in some ways the, the war in Aleppo. And in Colombia, we've been analyzing a particular data set, which is the victim's uh, registry, which is collected by the government to assign reparations. And it's been used as part of the peace process. But And I can describe both of those projects in more detail if you want. But the conflict urbanism, as we've defined it for the project, is not only war, but the everyday conflicts in any city. So... You know, war on the one hand, transitional justice on the other hand, everyday policing, language um, as an infrastructure of the city. Um, when you think of rural urban migration, this semester we're looking at three very different cities, Johannesburg, Mumbai, and Medellin, and looking at what we're calling infrapolitics or the ways in which informality, oftentimes uh, cities in the global south are, really almost hijacked and um, used in very creative ways by informal agglomerations. So conflict is, is really broadly de defined from war to everyday conflicts. We also did a big project about language, conflict urbanism, language justice, where we focused on language in New York City. And we collaborated with the Endangered Language Alliance, who are collecting Languages spoken by people in Queens, and there are over 800 languages actually spoken in Queens, and we called the map that we made beyond the census, because a lot of these people aren't even counted in the census. And it's a map that you can click on and, you know, go to Corona Queens and see that there's, you know, maybe 20 languages spoken there and find out, you know, where the language originates on a global map and its endangerment status as defined by UNESCO. 
This endangered language program, I mean, is it similar to, to Million Dollar Blocks in that the ultimate aim is to shift some some policy? I mean, what what grows out of the ability to observe that? Actually, I did a, a project um, in 2008 uh, and then again in 2016. It was a giant collaboration with architects Diller, Scofidia, and Renfro and uh, Bobby Pietrasco, who teaches in landscape at Harvard, and Mark Hansen, who's a statistician at Columbia. There were a lot of other people involved in the group, but those were the main collaborators. And um, we did a project called Exits, which was about migration around the world by people. So it showed political refugees and uh, economic refugees, economic migrants. But the last um, scene of that show was about endangered language. And it showed that endangered languages and endangered biodiversities globally often coincide. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So that project kind of showed that in a giant, in a, in a, in a giant installation, an immersive installation. Actually, it's in Chile right now. But then I discovered this Endangered Language Alliance in Queens. And that's an amazing thing that because, you know, rural urban migration, people talk about it. But it's very hard to map rural urban migration because you can really only do it through stories of individual people. And so when I saw that these same endangered languages that I had thought were completely disappeared, in fact, are alive in cities. And that if you notice them or if you find them and you understand the spatial networks that they occupy, there might be a way of saving some of these languages or at least recording them or providing, um, you know, ways that they can sustain themselves in the city. So they're oftentimes located within churches or within restaurants or, you know, community centers which gather people together. So working with a linguistics um, postdoc who's in the center right now, and she's been very Michelle McSweeney, and she's been very instrumental in this collaboration because she knows so much about the linguistic aspects of this. I've always been impressed with the sort of multidisciplinary nature of the center and the fact that, you know, there's this sort of set of tools that's being deployed to solve a wide variety of problems. And it's, it's very much in keeping with the role of the designer as, as I see it. And I guess, you know, a, a universal thread that I would observe is the, the process of collecting, analyzing, and presenting data to an audience that otherwise would not have seen that way and creating opportunities for that audience to act on that information once it's properly observed. For, for a young designer who's kind of out in their community and they're, they're observing a particular form of conflict there, what is the proper approach? Do they start by kind of going out and mapping it? I mean, what advice would you give for people who are young activists that are interested in doing something? I can't give advice, you know, across across the board. I think there, there's so many um, different forms of activism and so many different issues. But what my center does well is communicating with data, you know, and taking the biases of data seriously and trying to use data to open up spaces for action. You know, as a sort of academic institution, we take research really seriously. So activism is not the first outcome of what we do. You know, I think the Million Dollar Blocks 
project was used by activists and used in advocacy. But as you know, that line is is a very delicate one within research and especially within institutional research. So as you can see, you know, I'm not an activist. I'm not on the ground all the time, but I pay attention to specific issues. And it's interesting to me that communication is now seen as a form of activism. And I think communication and representation go hand in hand and representation. Um, and I don't just mean that in an abstract way, since I mean it in a political uh, form of, of representation. And this has become, I think, something hugely important in our age of massive overload of data and potential to use different kinds of data for different reasons. The war used to be a war of images. It's a war of data. It's a conflict of images, a conflict of data. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. And when you know what your issues that you are interested in, it's easy. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an interesting tension, right, to, to kind of go out there. And, and, you know, we have plenty of people in, in our community that think, you know, all representation is intrinsically political. You know, it's it's never neutral and that sort of thing. And the, the study of such things requires not an impartiality, but I guess as you described it, uh, a sort of willingness to admit the biases that are in, in, intrinsic in that form of representation, if I'm understanding it. Right. And if to search for them and to find them because they're in every piece of data, right, in every social media platform, in every advertisement that shows up on your Facebook feed, as we know, you know? Yeah, that's that's pretty overwhelming. <laughs> Interestingly, I, I just uninstalled Facebook on my phone. Like That's the environment we, we live in now. I don't know how overwhelming it is. It's how we organize what's coming at us. Um, and we are not organizing it for ourselves. And so you have to pay attention to that. And once you pay attention to that, you can go look for things in other places too. And you should. Well, that's good advice. And, you know, I hope our listeners really take it to heart because I think there's a lot of opportunity out there to explore. And we'll feature all of these projects on our website. You can go and check them out at currystonedesignprize.com. And we'll link to everything on the center. Make some time to, to review Laura's work and the work of the center because it's quite brilliant and I think an important paradigm to be understood in, in the age that we live in now. And then there's one thing that I want to add is that really do have an incredible team right now of talented mapping and data visualization people. And they all have contributed in large parts to the projects that are linked over here. So... Uh, Juan Saldariaga has been working in the lab for four to five years, and he has been mostly directing the Columbia project right now. And Michelle McSweeney is a linguistics um, postdoc. She's been with us for two years and has done a lot to direct the language justice project. Dare Brawley is the program manager of the center and will be around for a while. And she has done a lot to take these concepts of GIS data literacy um, across the humanities and done a number of tutorials and training sessions, a lot of which are online as a public resource. And that's very important for us as well. We don't only do projects, we really do see ourselves in the university as a as teaching data literacy. And we take that very we take that very seriously. So check out our tutorials online. 
Excellent. Laura, thank you so much. We, we really appreciate you taking the time. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We'd like to thank our guest of the week, Laura Kurgan of the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia University for her insights into data and how it's used. Next week, we'll be moving from New York back down to Texas to talk with agency architecture about their work at the U.S.-Mexico boundary and the architecture of surveillance as we continue to consider design and design thinking as forms of resistance. We hope that you'll tune into that. We'll link to all of Laura's aforementioned projects at our website at socialdesigninsights.com. There, you also find some further links about the work and history of the center and aids to further your research. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Curry Stone Foundation for all the latest news on social impact design.